0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Modern Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Cook. Today's episode is all about the future of work, because the reality of 2020 has triggered tremendous changes in how we work. How do we wrap our heads around what's already changed and what's coming next? And more importantly, how can we prepare for success in the future of work? Enter Elaine Mason, Vice President of People and Communities at Cisco Systems. Elaine is well-read and researched on all things future of work, and I invited her to join me in a conversation to help us make sense of trends and to offer tips on how we can all prepare for success. Elaine leads a team at Cisco dedicated to partnering with emerging and inclusive communities. Elaine also serves on the boards of several nonprofit organizations, and she holds her master's degree in organization development from Pepperdine University. Elaine, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. I wanted to have this conversation because I know that you spend a lot of time researching and having conversations about the future of work, which is this phrase that we all hear a lot about. We're recording this conversation still uh, during the pandemic. A lot of people are working remotely. And in some ways, it feels like the future of work has started to come upon us. And so I just wanted to get your perspective on What shifts we have been seeing and what we can expect looking forward based on what you've seen and read?
1: We know that the pandemic caused the future of work to arrive early, whether we liked it or not. When I think about future of work, I start thinking about what did we expect was going to happen in 2020? That a lot of people made predictions about what this year was going to be in 2010. I think a lot of them predicted rightly, and some of them had missed a couple of big marks. We heard about the gig economy and the talent war. That you know the world of work is going to change, and people were going to be a lot more flexible about their work. Uh, we heard about the end of corporate hierarchy. We heard about that workplace flexibility was going to become more common, and we heard about the uh, the, the robots were taking over. That it was going to be automation. It was going to be AI. And I think all of us can safe to say, between 2010 and now, a lot of those have actually come to fruition to some degree. But what the pandemic did is accelerated a couple of trends that were not being predicted. First was around, and this is mostly in the United States, but I actually say it would be in Europe as well, inclusion and diversity are becoming key to corporate strategies. And we started seeing this like a year or two ago with BlackRock that actually put out kind of the responsibility of corporations is beyond their bottom line and shareholders. And it's kind of uh, what we see now in social justice. It is absolutely kind of a pivot point for a lot of organizations where drawing are the line of what their responsibility is in society, mostly in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We've also heard that about like pandemic acceleration, future companies, like almost all companies are now running virtually with the rare exception. Uh, Twitter has decided that's the permanent game plan. But a lot of companies yeah. are still kind of, you know, riding the fence. The gig economy has definitely um, got, happened, but we're also seeing some, I would say, backlash or challenges there, like with Uber. And uh, what does it mean if you're a contingent worker? And um, the corporate structures, the idea that that was going to be the end of, of hierarchy. A lot of companies are kind of falling in the middle and they're kind of shifting away from, you know, designing for authority and really kind of shifting to designing for resilience. Those are all accelerated trends that at least you can see right now, smack in the middle of 2020. That was not expected and it's all here.
0: So you have touched on the importance of diversity to corporate strategy. You've talked about work going virtual. You've talked about the gig economy having bumped up and you've talked about starting to evolve away from those really kind of firm corporate structures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What else are you thinking about in terms of Virtual work and the focus on DNI and how, how should people be thinking about how to ready themselves for what might be coming next?
1: Yes. Yeah, so let's start with some um, uh, virtual work. Clearly we're all experiencing this with the, with the rare exceptions of either lab work or manufacturing work or healthcare workers and first line workers. The majority of us are now um, driving our butts about, you know, seven feet from our beds to our office. So uh, the world of work, I think is probably fundamentally changed some of the trends we're actually seeing from a corporate perspective. First, we are seeing more always on. And I think that is uh, the extension of the work day is something that we're going to see probably as a continuing trend. Some studies are saying that productivity is up. Some studies are saying work time is up, productivity is down. So what do we think is going to happen? The word that keeps coming up is hybrid. So what you're going to see is those large campuses for a lot of organizations, the campuses will probably shrink. The use of that space will be more event based or point in time based. And for those organizations, we're also going to see a kind of almost like more like a we work sort of an environment where it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to house this space. I'm going to, I'm going to hotel in this space for the day and otherwise leave. And I think another trend we're going to see is, um, and this starts to hit us as individuals, remote working technology will probably shift from WebEx, from Zoom, and we'll probably start going toward wearables. And the reason why we can see that trend is there are organizations that used to kind of monitor the data and the productivity that's on their computers through hours the machine was on. Now they're starting to use what they call data exhaust that comes out of WebEx or email or Office 360. Um, And those data sets are becoming very interesting to organizations as they try to understand productivity and where people are spending their time. Wearables gets us to that same space, especially as we're starting to hear about Zoom and video conference fatigue We're able to start getting people to maintain productivity without being on video um, so for us as human beings in the middle of all of this it means a couple of things for us one it means if we've been dying to live in another space but didn't want to because the work wasn't there go pack your bags you can probably move and still be really being able to get the financial support and the opportunity that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten or at least a wider range of them so if you're a new yorker that's been dying to live in wyoming this is your chance I think the second thing for us is, um, I think, becoming ruthless about prioritizing our work and ruthless about our time. Um, and that is where the world of work, if it's always on, if we do not get really clear on where is my time most valuably spent, we will all be subject to massive burnout. And, mm-hmm. and I think that is going to end up being one of those curve trends that we're going to see it all go up and up and up and up, that people are going to be working harder, 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 and then we're going to see a crash. And why we know this to be true for all of us as individuals, if we don't get ruthlessly good at time management and prioritization, is just look at what's happening from a mental health perspective. So there's a number of things that for us, we need to kind of become self-aware on and kind of guide because what we're not going to get from our corporations is guidance and regulation and holding the bar to make sure that we can have balance. It's going to be something we have to dictate for ourselves.
0: One of the things that you talked about is this idea of wearables giving us a different way of measuring productivity. And I I am curious about the concept broadly of productivity and are we starting to rethink how we are defining productivity? And is there anything relevant in there to your comment about changing structures, like changing management structures? I'm really curious about that because it sounds like productivity is largely being measured in hours spent. And as we all know, one can spend 10 hours staring at a screen being tremendously productive or tremendously unproductive. And I'm curious if you're starting to see trends towards any more intelligence around what actually defines productivity.
1: So I do think when uh, the pandemic first hit and all these companies, um, including Cisco, started fl- you know, going immediately into full-time remote, the measure was hours on because it's an easy <laughs> measure to get. And that is what is starting to change the definition of productivity. But at one point it was, okay, Elaine spent nine hours on Webex calls. Therefore, she was in nine hours worth of meetings. That's highly productive. And now what they're looking at are things like network connection. How many times is Elaine connecting with this person? What are they doing together? When they are doing that, are they are we seeing an output based on the OKR or the measures that they that they're being assessed against? So it's kind of mapping not only the activity, but the outcome. And that is a shift that is hard for a lot of companies to be able to do, but based on the data we're, co- we're able to collect now through all of these virtual means, in organizations that are uh, willing to kind of turn on that faucet, they can suddenly get a much more accurate lens of what productivity really means. And it really gets us, it's funny, right now, to your point, Rachel, it is absolutely, for most companies, kind of clock in, clock out. It's actually going back to like the 1960s. But if we can add that data exhaust and be able to attach it to the outcomes that people are driving... Then we're suddenly getting to outcome-based management, and it's going completely away from that other direction. There's a fascinating pivot here where we may, as a result of going virtual, we could be in a place where we actually redefine what what productivity means, which could go down the road that is like idyllic for all of us, which is, if I'm just judged on my outcomes, then if I can get my outcomes done in three hours or 10 hours, it's in my control.
0: And so based on what you're describing, this this world that we're heading towards, which is hybrid maybe the office becomes not the default but the place you go with intention as we're starting to think about measuring our outcomes as a means of productivity versus the number of meetings that we have in the day what would you be sort of coaching people to be thinking about in terms of their own behaviors in terms of their own discipline in terms of just starting to prepare for that future
1: yeah, yeah. i think uh, there are a couple of places where people can go um i think the first one really is Especially when I said that concept of being kind of ruthless of prioritization and ruthless about your time, it's be really clear on what is the what what are you trying to accomplish in the course of a day, and being clear on what time spent gets what result. I think a lot of organizations the busyness equaled value, mm-hmm. and for all of us and for us as individuals, we can start saying if my business busyness longer equals value, what work do I do that does equal value? What work do I do has an intended outcome? And if you get some sort of psychological satisfaction out of it, you get joy out of that work, you know, I'm all happy if you can embrace joy, you hold on to it. But if you're spending time on something that has just been routinized and done over and over and over again, this is your moment to relook and revisit and go, hmm, that's a lot of energy in, not a whole lot of impact out. And that's where that ruthless prioritization comes in.
0: Yeah, I think that that's great advice. It will take practice and we will need baby steps. It can be easier said than done. It's a helpful place to start.
1: Yeah. And one thing you can do just to kind of go there is um, somebody can give themselves kind of a couple of key criteria. Every time they're about to embark on a piece of work, it's how, you know, on a scale of one to five, how much would my client actually rate this as important? One being extraordinarily unimportant, five being like, Oh my God, please make this happen. You know, do that. The second one is if I'm doing this, what's my trade off? What am I willing to shut off or pause or put on hold to get that work done? And then the third thing that a person can do to kind of give themselves that criteria is, um, if I have an assessment of how much time this is going to take to get this thing done, triple it, is it still worth it? Because chances are, unless you're really good at time management, you're probably underestimating the amount of time it takes. Those three little things can start getting you toward kind of getting really clear on where you're spending your energy. And really, you know, getting clear on on when you can be the most productive. So let's talk a
0: little bit about diversity. Certainly, there have been things happening, at least here in the United States, that have put diversity in the spotlight. But I'm curious what you're seeing and what you're predicting around the degree to which executive leadership teams are truly starting to build that into their business strategies versus are companies paying it lip service right now because it's in the spotlight right now.
1: Yeah. So my, my hypothesis is probably yours, which is probably both. Um, what I will tell you is we're seeing some trends in those organizations that truly put social justice at the core of their value in their, in the world. Those companies that are hitting more toward triple bottom line. So people profit planet. Um, those companies are definitely kind of putting social justice in how they operate. Some things we're seeing as trends right now that you may already have started to see at corporations. First, that diversity is no longer a department that it actually becomes something that's integrated into all of their people practices and in some cases all their strategy. The way you'll spot that coming is when you look at an organization and they used to have a chief diversity officer and they've actually flipped it to a chief impact officer. And that's that's the title trend that is kind of giving us an indicator that diversity is becoming embedded. In my day job, I have a couple of roles um, in my current company, one of which is actually managing our employee resource groups. And uh, those employee resource groups represent roughly 25,000 people at a con- company of 75,000. And here's a big pivot that is, is proving, at least at my company, lip service isn't happening. Um, one, uh, the employee resource group leaders meet with our executive leadership team on a quarterly basis. And it's our quarter and the leadership team is actually meeting with them to gain proximity and understanding of what is your lived experience at our company. And every time a lived experience comes up that our executive leadership team was unaware of, they actually take course of action to correct it if it's not a positive experience. Um, I'll give you an example that we just saw from Twitter um, and just saw actually from uh, Starbucks, is they're actually starting to make those employee resource group leaders paid positions. They are that valuable to the organization because in the past, these types of groups really were focused on creating community and creating affinity and creating a safe space. And those things can have correlative outcome of productivity and quarterly outcome of engagement. But they're seeing with an organization really plugging into those communities, you can take it a lot further. You can actually start looking at those communities as a service to the organization itself, where they can give them proximity to what is really happening in the organization and create a better lived experience for all, increasing the mental health and wellness of the organization for all. And in a lot of cases, and this gets right down to either top line or bottom line growth, you can actually get on the place of using those groups to influence your marketing strategy, it can influence your product positioning, it can influence you closing a deal. It can influence how you're actually viewing how you position your products or how you're positioning your work. I do think that organizations are really pivoting, kind of embedding it in and really focusing on not only diversity in terms of um, visual and acquired diversity, but also kind of creating an inclusive environment where people feel welcome, heard, and safe, and also creating equity.
0: Do you have any advice for people who want to be a part of the conversation, who want to embody diversity, who want to be making sure that it's being brought to life within their organizations?
1: Yeah, so first, I'd say that the first thing is recognize you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say something or do something or not be as perfected as you may want to be to get involved in that conversation. Whether you are somebody that's in a group that is specifically identified, like Black or African American, or if you are a white male, You're going to make mistakes in either way. And that's because every human being is still a human being. Um, and whether they have a label on them or not, they're going to, they're going to react to you one way or the other. So start from there, start from a place of curiosity. And then if you do not feel like you're welcome because you do not have a a direct uh, connection to that community, but you still want to be a supporter of that community, study how to become an ally to that community. Um, what do they actually need? How do, and, and listen and become proximate with them. And all you need to do is listen and assume you just don't know. The key to this is a lot of humility, a lot of recognition that you're going to make mistakes and just really be curious to learn about both individuals and how groups experience the world.
0: So let's shift a little bit to the gig economy, which is another trend that you talked about. What are you seeing happening there?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Gig is having fits and starts. I would say, and we started predicting gig in 2010, and we're still seeing gig predictions in 2030. In the United States, we're going to have a different gig experience than many other countries, and that's largely related to our relationship with some fundamental things we need as things in the United States are directly affiliated with our work. Corporations have an expanded role right now of being a safety net for us and from a, health, from a healthcare perspective. So if we do not have other healthcare means, gig economy will remain stagnant because people will be unable to get the healthcare that they require. I think it will continue with some unionization. I think in certain states and certain cities, you're actually going to see struggles with gig around uh, what are the benefits that gig workers should have. That's um, Uber right now and Lyft are having challenges in California, actually, specifically around do they want to be categorized as contingent workers or employees of those companies. So for me, from a gig economy perspective, I think that We are going to see the trend, but it's going to keep fitting and starting in the United States, especially based on where our economics are, based on our U.S. policies.
0: From the perspective of the work itself, what kind of choices are you seeing people make as far as whether I want to continue pursuing a path in a corporate world or whether I want to test out this gig thing?
1: It's funny. I just had a colleague of mine actually choose to leave my company and actually go run full time running her own consulting firm. And I asked her, I'm like, so why are you choosing to do this? And um, I'm like, we're in the middle of a recession. Who knows what our economy is going to evolve into in the next couple of weeks, months, years. And she kind of circled three things of why she wanted to go gig. Uh, the first is she wanted to do the work that she wanted to do and felt that in her corporate role, about 20% of the time she was able to do work she wanted to do. The other 74% of the time, it was what was expected of her. The second thing was having perceived control over time or, or perceived control over saying yes or no. And i think the third thing that she was looking for is actually being able to integrate her values into her work where right now when you're in a corporation you have to subscribe to some degree to the values of that corporation and so sometimes that works great if the values of your corporation just absolutely match where you are but if your purpose and your values don't match that of your corporation something's going to give and it's likely your personal integrity so those are three reasons why she actually chose to go gig
0: and are there particular pockets or segments or places or skills where if somebody generically thinks, I would love to ready myself to go gig in the next five years, 10 years, any recommendations around where they might think about investing them in, in themselves to prepare?
1: It's a great question. Um, I've done gig, by the way, just so I have a little credibility. What I would say is the thing I would often tell people when they are going gig is advise them to get clear on what they want to be known for that means there's a very good degree of self-awareness, a very good degree of understanding what people know for them for today. And if there's a chasm or a gap in there, how do they want to address that gap? So I think it's really kind of aligning what you want to be known for, what you want to be gigging out and what you're actually capable of doing.
0: So let's move on to this last one, this idea of management structures shifting. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So we're not seeing one specific trend at all. What we are seeing though, if I want to, if I want to kind of say what the design toward organizations are trying to design away from efficiency, which is what has been the trend for the last, let's call it 10 to 15 years. And especially post COVID, they're trying to focus on designing for resilience. So that is if a group or a business suddenly fails out on us or an individual chooses to leave the organization, how fast can we recover? What uh, contingencies do we have in place? What plan Bs and plan Cs do we have in place? And organizationally, they're starting to create kind of groups and subgroups to be able to do that. So designing for resilience means that it will become increasingly harder to navigate how organizations are operating, but the intention is that you have a number of fail-safes. So
0: it sounds like becoming adept at managing through and navigating change is an important skill for people to focus on building in the future. Resilience sounds like an important skill to focus on building in the future. I'm curious, when you talk about this, what is the impact on people who have always thought about their careers in terms of title and promotion? You know, as people are kind of setting goals for themselves and building plans and creating individual development plans, how should they be thinking differently about what what growth looks like?
1: It's a great question. And we're not actually, I, I wouldn't say that titles are going to become less relevant. I And I think that long since most people have given up the ladder and the lattice of career. Here's what I would say is um, my advice to most people is you evaluate your growth in three ways. One is from your economic target, and your economic expectations, and less about the title and more about are you meeting economic goals that you have for yourself. The second is about what I usually refer to as power distance. You may have a title that might not look like what you were expecting it to look like, but how close are you to positions of power and authority where you can make the largest impact on an organization? And the third one about career in general, I think is really critical is, are you learning and are you growing? You can have great titles, but if you are stagnant, you're probably not engaged and not motivated and not really going to be going very far. So you have to make sure that your aspiration of what you can make from an income perspective matches your capability and then matches your goals in a career.
0: Really well said. And for anybody who listens to the show, they know I am a big believer in the idea that we all get to define our own success. And it's not just defined by your title. And it's not necessarily just defined by how much money you make. To your point, there are economics we have to consider. We have to be able to afford the life we want. And I love Mm -hmm. the fact that you point people towards development and learning and growing and being able to have impact, which is a lovely way to think about one's career as people sort of absorb this conversation that we've had, what do you feel like is the most important thing you want somebody to take away from this?
1: We're not going to be able to predict every single trend that's about to happen to us. Um, if you ask someone five years ago, with the exception of Dr. Fauci, most people weren't even predicting pandemic. So knowing that that's where we are, um, what we can all do for ourselves is we can become more self-aware and we can work more on our em- our emotional intelligence Those things carry with you regardless of the career, regardless of the direction, regardless of the future. That kind of ability to not only be empathetic and put yourself in someone's shoes, but be able to help take action to support them is gonna play off in spades at work. The ability to be self-aware and understand whose needs you're working as you're working make you incredibly powerfully impactful regardless of your title, your grade, your level, your company. And ultimately, for me, um, you can always stay curious um, and that keeps you in a place of growth. So for me, it doesn't tell you what the next trends are going to be, but it does tell you how you can kind of ride the wave regardless of what those trends are going to be. Well,
0: thank you so much for the conversation. It's, it's been really interesting. Certainly a lot has happened in the past few months and I imagine the next couple of years are going to be quite a ride for all of us, but I, I think and I hope we're all a little bit more well-equipped to navigate it. So thank you so much, Elaine. And there you have my conversation with Elaine Mason. I hope you're feeling ready to tackle whatever the next phase of work brings your way. Have a question I can answer? Check out my bio for all the ways you can reach me. You can also check out my website at leadabovenoise.com or follow me on the Modern Mentor Podcast page on LinkedIn, where I share exclusive videos, articles, and bits of inspiration. Join me next week for an episode on the strategic power of being a giver at work. Until then... Thanks so much for listening, and have a successful week. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential.